This, this evening's scripture reading is from Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Good evening and welcome again. We're glad that you're here tonight. We're going to be looking again at a lesson that we began last week. We were looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6, and in that context, we were talking about a man by the name of Uzzah and the fatal mistake that he made. And so we're going to continue that lesson tonight, and really we're just going to make reference to it and look at some other passages as well as we think about honoring the authority of God and honoring the authority of God's Word. Those of us who are here tonight, I believe, are convinced that Scripture is our guide in life and in practice. The passage that, that Ben read a moment ago, Colossians 3.17, instructs us that whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so we want to be people that, to the best of our ability, submit to the will of God, because we understand that Jesus has all authority. And as He welds all authority, He guides us through the holy book that we call the Bible. And so I want us to begin again by looking very quickly at 2 Samuel chapter 6. You recall David and those with him sought to transport the ark of God on a new cart. And as they made their way out of the house of Abinadab, the Bible tells us that Uzzah, put out his hand, in verse 6, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. David later comments on this in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. His assessment of this situation he summed up in his words in verse 2 when he said, No one may carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord but the Levites. For them the Lord has commanded to carry the ark of the Lord. In that same chapter, David acknowledges the fact that the reason wherein Uzzah was put to death was because they did not follow the proper or due order. In other words, they did not transport the ark of God as he had instructed. In Exodus chapter 25, the Bible tells us that the Levites were to bear that ark on their shoulders. Poles were placed through the rings of the ark and they would carry that ark. There was no authority for putting it on a new cart. No authority for anyone else to bear that ark but the Levite people. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 10 at verse 8, 
Moses said at that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to minister before him, to stand before him. Unfortunately, David and those with him transgressed the will of God and paid a very heavy price. There's a second example I want to appeal to tonight. It's found in the book of Leviticus chapter 10. In this context, in verses 1 and 2, we read about the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. And the Bible tells us that each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. If you look over in chapter 16, verse 12, you'll read of the events that were to take place on the great day of atonement. And in that chapter, God instructs the high priest to offer sacrifice. And according to chapter 16, verse 12, Nadab and Abihu were struck dead because they offered strange fire, that is, unauthorized fire. They took that fire from somewhere other than the altar of sacrifice. And they too paid a heavy price. There's one other example I want to call attention to. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we read about a king in the southern kingdom, a man by the name of Uzziah. And he was the 10th king in the southern kingdom. Overall, we would say that he was a good king. He might have been weak in some areas, but basically, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. As a matter of fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, the Bible says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. But there was a problem that we read about in this chapter regarding Uzziah. Drop down and look at verse 16, if you would. In verse 16, the Bible says that when he was strong and he had done a lot of great things during his reign. He reigned for a lot of years. But the Bible says his heart was lifted up. Now note what is said in relationship to his heart being lifted up with pride to his destruction. You remember what Solomon said in Proverbs 16 verse 18, pride goes before destruction? a haughty spirit before a fall, Isaiah unfortunately learns a great lesson about God's authority and the respect that we are to have for the authority of God. The text says that when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. In verse 17, the Bible says that Azariah, the high priest, went in after him. Some 80 other priests who are described as valiant men, they went as well. In verse 18, the Bible says, and they withstood King Uzziah 
and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. In other words, God wanted the priestly tribe, that is, the tribe of Levi, to function in this capacity. God had already made that abundantly clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 10 at verse 8. He had set apart the tribe of Levi. Now we talk about the tribe of Levi and the specific duties that were entrusted unto them. When God said, I have set apart this tribe, that meant no one else. No one else had the right, the authority, to engage in priestly duties, to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, or to burn incense for that matter. As a result of that, look at verse 19. I said a moment ago that the text says that Uzziah was lifted up with pride. In verse 19, when he was challenged by Azariah and the other 80 valiant priests, the Bible says he became furious and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. The reason I bring these examples up is because when we look at the Old Testament, they serve, these principles serve as a foundation upon which we can learn a lot of great lessons. Paul would say in Romans chapter 15 verse 4 that those things that were written before time were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we appeal to the Old Testament not because we're bound by that law today, we're under the law of Christ according to Galatians 6.2, but we can learn from these great examples. And so when you look at Uzzah and Uzziah, Nadab and Abihu, what we learn is that they disrespected Almighty God and His authority. Nowhere in Scripture has God ever given mankind the right or the latitude to determine how He will worship Him or, for that matter, how He will honor Him. God in heaven legislates us today through His Word. Now, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, God had said through Moses that the children of Israel were not to add unto his word, nor were they to take away from his word, or as some translations say, they were not to diminish aught from his word, that they might keep the commandments of the Lord. The bottom line, they weren't to add to or take from. In Proverbs chapter 30 at verse 6, the writer there said, add not unto his word lest he reprove you and you be found a liar. So this principle, deeply embedded in Old Testament scripture, you don't add to, you don't take from God's word. If you do that, then you pay a very severe, a very severe penalty. Now in the New Testament, we believe that Jesus has all authority. We mention passages like Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. God the Father said regarding the Son, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Matthew 17, 5. 
Paul said, whatever we do in word or deed, we are to do by the authority in the name of Jesus Christ, Colossians 3, 17. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul said, we're not to go beyond the things which are written. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, basically a re reiteration of what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. We're not to add to nor take from the word of God. I understand that contextually speaking, John there is writing about the revelation. But the principle runs throughout scripture. So we don't have the right, we don't have the privilege of doing as we please. In matters of faith and practice, God is very specific. And God has outlined how we're to live, how we are to interact with one another, how we become Christians, how we remain faithful Christians. He has outlined the work of the church, the government of the church, the worship of the church. There are a lot of different things that fall under the authority of Christ. I mentioned last week in our study that God in heaven is the one who has dictated to us the terms of admission into the body of Christ. I was talking to Jared last Monday and I told him that I was going to make reference to this point again and just maybe make a couple of other observations regarding what the Bible says concerning salvation from sin. There are a lot of folks in the world today that misunderstand how a person becomes a New Testament Christian. I believe that the Bible, in a very specific manner, addresses how we become New Testament Christians. Jesus himself talked about the importance of the new birth in John chapter 3. And Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5 he said, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom that he was talking about was the church. That is that spiritual institution that Jesus came to establish and he did. Pentecost day, it began. Some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel and became members of the body of Christ. There's a passage of scripture that I want to appeal to tonight. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. There we have the Lord Jesus Christ instituting what we typically call the Lord's Supper. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my blood of the New Covenant or of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now that phrase, for the remission of sins, is important because it is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the identical phrase. Why was Jesus put to death on Calvary's cross? So that we might enjoy the remission of sins. Would you agree with that? I think all of us would agree. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. We understand that the blood of Christ is what washes away our sins. Most people, religiously speaking, that is those in the religious world at large, most people would agree that salvation is based on the blood of Christ. The question is, how do we get into Christ? How do we contact the blood of Christ? 
The Bible says that Jesus shed his blood for the remission of our sins. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the apostle Peter on Pentecost Day said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins or for the remission of your sins. Same phrase. You can go back, you can check the original language. Same phrase. Why then are we to repent and be baptized? So that we might have the remittance of our sins, so that our sins might be forgiven. Now, we talk about honoring and respecting the law of God and the will of God. I don't have the right to tell God, you know what, we can do something else and be saved. I don't have the right to change the terms of admission into the body of Christ. I am instructed to preach and teach the truth of God. You know, Haggai in the long ago was the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message, according to Haggai chapter 1, verse 13. Every faithful gospel preacher is the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. All we're trying to do, convey the sentiments of what Scripture says. As Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. God's word trumps any and every law. It is the final voice of authority. So, when we say that people have to repent and be baptized into Jesus Christ, there are two very specific reasons why people need to be baptized. Now, in stressing baptism for the remission of sins, in no way do I want anyone to ever get the impression that belief is not equally required or important. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We understand that we have to put our faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. We have to believe that He is the divine Son of God, that eternal being, as He said in John chapter 8, verse 24. We must then repent of our sins. That is, turn away from a life of sin, as Peter instructed those people on Pentecost Day to do. And then we do as the eunuch did, Recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. We acknowledge Jesus as the Son of the living God. We make the good confession. You can read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And then we're baptized into Christ. Well, why are we baptized into Christ? Number one, we're baptized into Christ so that we might enjoy the remission of sins. So that we might be saved. Mark 16, verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We are baptized into Christ so that our sins might be washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. Our sins are not washed away. We don't contact the blood of Christ at the point of belief, repentance, or confession. But when you take belief, repentance, confession, and then immersion in water, then you have a New Testament Christian. You have somebody that has been cleansed by the power of the blood of Jesus. Well, how do we get into Christ? As I said a moment ago, the only way to get into Christ is to be baptized into Christ. Salvation is in Christ, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. How then do I get into Christ? Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. You're all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. 
So when we're baptized into Christ, what happens? Well, we enjoy salvation, Mark 16, 16. The remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Furthermore, we enjoy the washing away of sin, Acts 22, verse 16. We become part of the body of Christ, and that's the second very important reason why we're baptized. When people submit to the gospel plan of salvation, that is, when they come to Jesus Christ, believing that he is who he claims to be, repenting of sin, confessing his name, and then are immersed in water. The Bible says not only are they forgiven, but God adds them to the church. We don't vote anybody into the church. We don't join the church. God adds people to the church. Well, how do I know that? Acts 2 verse 47, the Lord added to the saved, to the church daily. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13, Paul said, by one spirit were you all baptized into one body. When I'm baptized into Christ, God puts me in the one body. Well, why do I need to be a part of the one body? I thought I could have a relationship with Jesus and God the Father without having, having any formal ties to a church or having, having any kind of church affiliation. Not possible. Well, how do I know that? Well, because the Bible says when I submit to the gospel plan of salvation, God adds me to the church, Acts 2.47. He places me in the one body. What's the one body? He's the head of the body, which is the church, Colossians 1.18. Well, how many churches are there? Ephesians 4.4. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So when we are placed in the body of Christ, we are identified as the saved, Acts 2.47. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 5.23. Paul said that those who are in the body are the saved because he is the savior of the body. Those are the terms that he uses in Ephesians 5.23. Now think about how foreign that is what so many people believe and think in the world today. Years ago, there was a movement that said, Jesus, yes, the church, no. The two are intertwined. You can't separate Christ and his church. Why? Because he's the head and the church is the body. He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. The church is just as much a part of God's redemptive plan is Jesus going to the cross? So when we stress people being baptized into Christ, it's because the New Testament emphasizes these important truths. And again, all we're trying to do is uphold what the Lord said. I heard a very prominent preacher some years ago, and if I were to call his name, you would know him. I was listening on the radio one day and he was talking about baptism. He caught my ear. And he asked the question, is baptism an obligation or an option? His response was, it is an obligation. It is not an optional matter. And then he turned right around and said, but you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. Look. You can't have it both ways. Either it is essential or it is not essential. Jesus said it is essential. 
Did he know what he was saying? He was a son of God. The very idea that we would question what Jesus had to say. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That is a quotation. I didn't embellish what he said. I didn't provide a commentary on what he said. That's what he said. So the question is, did he mean what he said? Well, the answer is obvious, yes. He meant what he said. Peter on Pentecost Day, when he instructed those people to be baptized into Christ, did he mean what he said? Well, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He spoke in new tongues, that is, tongues unlearned by him, as well as the other apostles. They preached the gospel on that day. When you begin going through the cases of conversion in the book of Acts, every single case of conversion, the people did the same thing. As a matter of fact, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in about verse 16, that he taught the same thing in every church. Think about how foreign that is to the religious world today. It's odd that in the religious world today that people will practice and teach a number of different doctrines. And yet I thought the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, that there are to be no divisions among us. But he said that we are to all speak the same thing. Now I want to ask you a question. How can we all speak the same thing, believe the same thing, and practice the same thing? Only one way. We've got to take this book that we call the Bible. When Jesus prayed for unity in John chapter 17, and by the way, he was praying for unity in the shadow of the cross. He prayed that the religious world might be one through their word, that is, through the words of the apostles. So in Acts 2.42, the Bible says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that is, in their teaching, and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. So what are we to do? We're to follow the apostles' doctrine. That is, we are to follow what the Bible has to say. We are to be submissive to what God has to say. Now we look back at the Old Testament and we see the grave mistakes that people made because they did not respect the authority of God. We do not want to be guilty of disrespecting God's law. Does God have a law? Yes, He does. Has He given us a pattern, a blueprint for the work of the church? The government of the church, admission into the church, the worship of the church, the answer is yes. Take, for example, we're talking about salvation. Think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. He said, but God be thanked that though you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. That word form there means a pattern, a blueprint. He said, you obeyed from the heart that form, that pattern, that blueprint of doctrine delivered to you. And being set free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. There was a blueprint in the first, in the first century of how people were to be saved. There's a blueprint today. What's the blueprint? What is the blueprint? It's the Word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said, hold fast the form 
There's that word. The form, the pattern, the blueprint, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. So we have a blueprint to follow. I want to think with you for just a moment or two about the terms of worship that are outlined in Scripture. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus in the long ago said, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The idea is that we are to worship God by his authority, by his word. We are to worship him with the right attitude, that is, in spirit. If you look at John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit, they that worship him must worship him. That's an obligation. We are obligated to worship God in spirit, that is, with the right attitude, and in truth. Now, who's the aim of our worship? God is. Sometimes we have the idea that we are the audience. We're not the audience. God is the audience. God is the one that we're bowing before in worship. We are the ones that are offering worship to God. You remember the words of the psalmist? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Jesus said, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There are five acts of worship outlined in the New Testament. There are a number of passages that appeal to the worship of the New Testament church. Now, when you look at those five acts of worship, there is not a single passage that outlines all five in one context. But you begin looking at the New Testament as a whole and sifting through what God has said in his word, and you can come to the conclusion that there are some specific acts that we're to engage in. For example, the Bible tells us that we are to offer prayers unto God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 8, Paul said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, but if I tarry long, that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul wrote to Timothy and outlined, among other things, regulations regarding worship to Almighty God. In verse 8, God said that the male is to take the lead in the public worship assembly, specifically in that context, he's talking about prayer. Now I understand that it has become fashionable among many, many people to go the route of gender inclusion. And the whole idea is that there are people that want to use women in a more expanded role in the work and leadership of the church. Well, let me ask you this question. Isn't it interesting that in in that same chapter, chapter 2, in verse 1, that Paul says that prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. That word men there means male and female. In verse 4, the Bible says that God would have all men to be saved. That's male and female. But then he gets to verse 8, and he said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, and he doesn't use 
the term denoting male and female. It's male only. Why would he make the change there? Because he is regulating the roles of men and women in worship to God. Do I have the right to say, you know what, we need to change this up? I mean, after all, that's, I mean, that's archaic and old-fashioned. I mean, don't we have the right? Don't we have the latitude to say, you know what, we need to use women in a more expanded role. It's not my call. Not my call, not your call, not any eldership's call, not any call of a deacon. God in heaven is the one that regulates that. And so in verse 12, he said, I suffer not a woman to teach or usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And then note what he says. For Adam was first formed and then Eve. That is not cultural. That is rooted in creation. And so those who are wanting to use women in a more expanded role, there are some that saying that women ought to be able to teach. After all, they have tremendous ability. Look, there are some women that are tremendous public speakers. They have all the ability in the world. As a matter of fact, there are some very gifted, very gifted ladies out there. And they can use that ability in a number of areas. But not in public worship to God. Because you see, we're not talking about ability, we're talking about authority. Would it not be presumptuous of me to say, you know what, God didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, after all, we need to use women. This is 21st century. We need to get in step with the times. Look, our pattern goes back to the first century. Our lawgiver, Jesus Christ, James chapter 4, verse 12, there is one lawgiver and one judge. Not my call, not your call, not anybody's call. God in heaven made that call. Now the Bible says that prayer is a part of public worship. When somebody stands before an assembly and leads in prayer, we all bow our heads in prayer to God and we pray to Him, the giver of every good and perfect gift. A second specific act of worship is singing. We are to sing, as Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, with grace in our hearts to the Lord. We are to sing, sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord, as Paul would say in Ephesians 5, verse 19. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he said, Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. There are a lot of folks in the religious world today that have the idea that the usage of mechanical instruments in worship is acceptable. Sometimes people appeal to the Old Testament, for example, the book of Psalms. And they'll ask the question, didn't David in the Psalms have something to say about mechanical instruments of, use, of music in worship to God? Yes, he did. I'd freely grant that. Here's the problem, though. We're not talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about the New Testament. 
the law of Christ. Paul said to sing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Very specific. Sometimes we misunderstand specific and generic authority. In Genesis chapter 6, you remember when God said he was going to destroy the world by means of a flood because of the wickedness of man? So God told Noah in verse 14 to make an ark of gopher wood. Very specific. Had God said to Noah, Noah, you build an ark with wood, he would have been at liberty to use any kind of wood that he saw fit. But when God said to use gopher wood, that excluded every other kind of wood. When God set apart the tribe of Levi to function as priest before him, that excluded every other tribe. It excluded everybody else. No one had the right to function in that capacity. Why? Because God said this is the way it's going to be. So what about Mechanical instruments of music. Let me just read for you some statements that were made or have been made by some very scholarly people, people that many of us know. I want to begin by reading a statement by a man by the name of James McKinnon. In a dissertation requirement for his PhD at Columbia University, and this goes back to 1965, here's what he said. Early Christian music was vocal. He went on to say the strongest possible evidence indicates they were not used in the early church. He suggests the first instrument used was the organ and was followed by the trumpet. Some folks go back to about 680, others about 755, when the instrument was introduced in what is called, quote-unquote, Christian worship. John Calvin who as many of you know was one of the founders of the Presbyterian Church along with John Knox. In his commentary on Psalm 33, here's what he said. Musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. He said the papists therefore have foolishly barred this as well as many other things from the Jews. And then Adam Clark, he was a very well-known Methodist commentator. As a matter of fact, uh, wrote a very good set of common commentaries. He was against the usage of instruments in worship to God. And here's what he said concerning 2 Chronicles chapter 29, 25. The whole spirit, soul, and genus of Christian religion are against this. And those who know the church of God best and what constitutes the genuine spiritual state know that these things have been introduced as a substitute for the life and power of religion. And where they prevail most, there is least of the power of Christianity. Away with such portentous baubles from the worship of that infinite spirit who requires his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth for to no such worship are those instruments friendly? That was penned by Adam Clark. And then Charles Spurgeon, who was probably in his day the greatest Baptist preacher. 
As a matter of fact, he preached to some 10,000 people on a weekly basis in London. Here's what he said concerning the 42nd Psalm, and this was taken from the treasury of David. David appears to have had a peculiarly tender remembrance of the singing of the pilgrims. And assuredly, it is the most delightful part of worship, and that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. He said, we might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Then I want to cite for you one other, one other person. Brother Barry Ray gave me a, a paper that was written by a gentleman that is a member of the Primitive Baptist Church. And he did probably one of the best jobs that I have ever read. I haven't read the entire article. But he defends really meets every argument. But he defends what the New Testament teaches regarding worshiping God in song. And so what really caught my eye in, in reading his material was uh, the fact that he cited a number of, of scholars and commentators that did not believe in the usage of instrumental music. And his conclusion was that those who were a part of the Primitive Baptist Church did not use instrumental music not because of what other people had said, not because of what other scholars had said, but because he said God did not authorize it. So, boy, this guy, he got it. It's not because we don't like mechanical instruments of music. I like them. I, I, like, I like to hear somebody play the piano, the guitar, the drums, etc. I appreciate music in that realm. But when it comes to the worship of God, it's not about what I like or what I want. It's about what God authorizes. God said to sing. When God said to sing, that excluded everything else. If I had the time, I would read for you a number of things that I think you would appreciate along this line. Let me just close by saying that the other acts of worship outlined in the New Testament. We talk about the Lord's Supper. We do that every first day of the week because we have an apostolic example of that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. The Bible says, As often as you eat this bread and drink, and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till He come again. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. There is the preaching of the Word. When Paul and the other saints met in Troas, one of the things that they did in addition to the Lord's Supper, they preached the word. And then there's the giving of our means. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 and 2. We do it every first day of the week. God said that we are to lay aside 
so that the church, the work of the church, can be furthered and that no collections be made, as he said, when I come. There are a lot of things that we could talk about regarding the authority of Christ, the authority of God. And I want to close tonight by saying this. Listen, don't take what I have said tonight because I have said it. That's the last thing in the world I want you to do. What I want to challenge you to do is read and study and draw your own conclusions. What I want you to do is make sure that what I have said comes from the Bible. We want to be like the Bereans who searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things are so. If what I have said has been true, based on what the Bible says, believe it. If what I have said is not true, not in accordance with scripture, then by all means, reject it. Now maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You haven't done what the Lord has said to do to become one of his children. It's very simple. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess his name. Be baptized into Christ. Let him add you to his church, Acts 2.47. And then be faithful until death. And if you'll live faithfully until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you've not, you've not been faithful to the Lord, I want you to know that God not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's interested in you individually. God wants you to be saved. So if you're here tonight and you're not faithful, why not come back? Why not let us pray with you and for you and God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.